Good evening. Welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. Tonight we're in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verses 10 through 17. Last week we started our study of this letter, uh, the letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, we started with the first nine verses, and like all but one of Paul's letters, he starts with thanksgiving. And last week we looked at those thanksgivings, and, and we challenged one another to be thankful for ways God has blessed us. And I hope that was a, a blessing to you. Even in these dark and uncertain times, we have ample reason to be thankful. So I hope that brought you some joy and some sense of gratitude and hope. But today we get into the meat of the letter. After Paul's initial greetings, he gets into his real purpose for writing. And it's not the purpose for which the Corinthians thought he would be writing. Like in a lot of Paul's letters, he was writing to respond to a request from the church. The Corinthians had written him a letter asking him certain questions, and Paul gets to those questions, but he starts off with something different, as we'll see in just a moment. So uh, before we begin, I want to tell you uh, a story of something that happened to me early in my pastoral ministry. I was a pastor of the church of First Baptist Stockdale, Texas, when I was in my 20s, can't believe that a great church would let a wet-behind-the-ears kid like me uh, pastor them for three years. And it was a great church. It's a great town, wonderful people. I still uh, am in contact with many of them. And, you know, really, honestly, if God had left me there the rest of my pastoral career, I would have been quite content. Such good people, but the Lord had other plans. But that doesn't mean that my time there was without problems. Uh, there were issues that came up. At one point, uh, two couples in the church, two uh, people who were old enough to be my parents, um, and, and very influential people, people I thought highly of and who had been always very kind to me, decided to leave the church. And they weren't necessarily mad at me, but they, were, they really disagreed with some decisions the church had made. And since I was the pastor, ultimately, I kind of took that personally. Um, so it hurt. Uh, again, no hard feelings. Uh, when one of the men passed away, his family called me years later and asked if I could do the funeral. So I, I, I still have great respect for them. But um, they left. And then shortly afterwards, I found out they were forming a new church. Um, they were forming a new church with two other groups of people who had split off, larger groups who had split off from other churches, including one of the groups had split off from First Baptist Sutherland Springs, which uh, we're all familiar with for tragic reasons from a couple of years ago. So, so these three groups of people who had left churches where they were unhappy came together to form a church. And that's the last I heard of it until a couple weeks later when our director of missions called. For those of you that aren't Baptist or don't know, the director of missions isn't my boss, but he's the person that helps coordinate the ministries, the mission ministries of all the churches in a particular area. In our area today, it's Dr. Roger Yancey. So back then, Tommy Wilson, our director of missions, calls me and he says, Jeff, I'm just curious if you're familiar with this new church that's being formed, and some of your members are part of it, called Unity Baptist Church. And, and it was one of those moments where if I'd had a sip of water in my mouth at that moment, I would have spewed water all over my computer screen because, again, I, I love these people, but to call a church made up of people who were just unhappy at their old church, to call it unity, well, that's rather ironic, I thought. And, and again, not to say that there's, it, it's, it's never right or never okay to leave a church. Sometimes 
uh, sometimes it's the right thing to do. And certainly, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be angry at me. And I'm sure God's disappointed with me often. So what I am saying, though, is that's the way we are. We have a tendency to get angry with one another. We as Christians have a tendency not to get along. As I've said before, you notice when you go to any town, there's a First Baptist Church, but then there are several other churches. And that's because, even in a small town, that's because we can't get along with each other. And it would be funny if it weren't so sad. And we know this is an important issue to God. This is not something that a lot of Christians are interested in, an issue that, the, that is a hot button for them. When, whenever we have a time where preachers like me say, hey, give me your requests. What kind of sermon series would you like to hear? We never hear, well, tell us about what the Bible says about unity in God's church. That's not something we're interested in. Tell us about the end times. Tell us about how the Bible applies to current events. Tell us about this particular political issue. But it's obviously an important issue to God because it's all over the New Testament. In fact, there's something about it in every book of the New Testament. So let's pick it up with verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes and says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that's Paul's opening statement following his, following his opening greetings, his thanksgivings, his opening instruction. And we'll come back to that in, in a little while at the end of our study. But that's just the way Paul transitions into the meat of the message. Be of one mind, one spirit. Then he says in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe was. We don't read about her anywhere else in the Bible. So obviously she was a member of the Corinthian church who hosted, uh, probably who hosted the church in her, in her household or else uh, members of her family. She must have been the head of the family um, who had communicated with Paul and told him these issues are going on in the church. Let me tell you what's significant about that. Like I said at the beginning, Paul was writing in response to some questions that the Corinthians had sent him in a letter. And we know what some of those questions were because Paul talks about them later. He addresses them. He says, hey, you asked me about food sacrifice to idols. Let's talk about that. You asked me about spiritual gifts. Let me tell you what I think about that. Let me, you, you asked me about marriage. Okay, I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit says about that. You asked me about uh, how women should behave in worship. Well, we'll get to that. Paul addresses their questions, but not right at first. What he's saying here is, I didn't even hear this from your leaders. I heard this from one of the, one of the families in your church. I, I heard this through back channels. In, he, sort of implying the leaders of the church should have told me these problems were going on. And so for Paul, the most significant thing is not the stuff the Corinthians wrote him about. The most significant problem is the division within the church. And he spends the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians dealing with this issue and the reasons why we should be united, and the things that should unite us. So we're going to be on this topic one way or another for quite a while in this study. He goes on in verse 12 and says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So... Contextually, what you need to understand is in the first century, it was very popular for 
particular teachers, rabbis, philosophers, I'm talking within Jewish circles, within Greek circles, across the board. If you were a teacher of some kind, religious or secular, you had disciples, you had followers, and they acted like fanboys do today. Today you'll see uh, nerds on the internet arguing about who's the best superhero, or people online arguing about who's the best second baseman. By the way, that's Jose Altuve. Uh, but they acted this way in the first century. They got heated about it. My teacher is better than your teacher. My teacher is more righteous. My teacher preaches the truth and yours doesn't. And that had infiltrated the church so that there was division in the congregation of Corinth. There were at least four separate factions. There was the Paul group. There were people who said, hey, Paul's my man. He's my teacher. He's who I listen to, which makes sense because Paul planted the church in Corinth. He was probably the one who led many of these people to salvation. And then there were those who said, I'm, I'm a follower of Apollos. Now, Apollos is not as familiar to most of us. His story in Scripture is very brief. We read about him in Acts 18. Apollos was a young Jewish man from Alexandria who shows up uh, in the early church and starts teaching the, the truth, starts going to synagogues and preaching about Jesus. Um, and and he's, he's described as being eloquent, competent in the scriptures, and fervent in spirit. So this is a powerful preacher. Problem was, he hadn't heard the whole gospel. He had been taught about Jesus by some of the disciples of John the Baptist. So he knew that Jesus was Messiah. He didn't know all about the resurrection. He didn't know all about the atoning death. And so Acts 18 says that Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's partners, took him aside and taught him more fully the truth. And then you took, that meant you took a, a guy with fantastic natural gifts and abilities and married it with the true gospel. And suddenly you had a powerful preacher of the word. And he goes on and, and starts debating with his fellow Jews in synagogues and, and out debating them and showing them that Christ is the way. And he was just a, an incredibly dynamic person in the early church. And so people in Corinth, he, he followed Paul. After Paul had left Corinth behind to plant churches elsewhere, Apollos followed in his footsteps and taught in Corinth for an unspecified time. And you can imagine that people who were in his camp would have said, you know... I know Paul planted the church and we owe him lots of respect, but I just get nothing when he speaks. He's boring, he's dry, but when Apollos teaches, it speaks to my heart. When Apollos teaches, I know I hear the Lord's voice. Can't you hear that? Don't you hear people saying that about specific uh, human teachers today? Apollos, by the way, I think this is really noteworthy. We find out in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians that Paul has tried to talk Apollos into going back to Corinth, but pa Apollos refuses. I'm not going back there, he says. Why? We don't know, but we can guess it's because he says there's a whole camp of people who consider themselves my followers, and I don't want to feed that. That's not what I want. I want them to believe in Jesus. I don't want to show up there and them treat me like a celebrity. Then there was a group that says, we're followers of Peter. Actually, Paul refers to him as Cephas, which was his Hebrew name, instead of Peter, which was his Greek name, which is the way he was usually referred to in the New Testament and in the early church. And the reason why he calls him Cephas, I believe, and a lot of scholars believe is, because this is probably a group within the church that we call the Judaizers. Um, Judaizers, and that's a name we've made up. They were people in the early church who were Jewish Christians, but not all Jewish Christians were Judaizers. These specifically were Jewish Christians who were 
I guess I, they, are, they identified more as Jewish than as Christian. Yes, they believed Jesus was Messiah, but their main thing was, we want to preserve the teachings of Israel, we want to preserve the traditions of our faith. And so if someone, let's say like me, a, a, a non-Jew, came to know Christ and came to their church, their first thing wouldn't be to say, oh, hallelujah, another lost sheep has come home. They would have said, okay, buddy, we got to get you circumcised. We got to make sure you fit within our parameters. They wanted the church to be Jewish more than they wanted it to be Christian. And so it's very likely that the, the Peter group identified with Peter because he was known as the apostle to the Jews, whereas Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So this is a third faction. And then there was a fourth faction that Jesus says, and, and these people say, we're of Jesus, which sounds good. Shouldn't we all want to be of Jesus? And yet notice Paul does not commend them. Paul doesn't say, okay, these are the ones who are on the right track, which tells me them saying, I'm of Jesus or I'm of Christ was not really sincere. It tells me what it probably was, was more like people saying, okay, all you people over there who believe in Paul or Apollos or, or, uh, or Peter, you're not real believers. I'm a real believer. Our, our camp, our, our little group of people over here, we're the real Jesus people. And anytime you have a group of Christians who, who want to narrowly define, okay, we're the only saved ones, that's always a warning sign because the, the tent of grace is very wide and it embraces a lot of different people. Okay, I'm spending a lot of time here, but uh, this is the key issue in Corinth, the key issue in the letter to the Corinthians, so I want to touch on how this applies to us today. You might say, well, we don't have those issues in our church. I don't, I don't walk around hearing people say, well, I'm of Rick Warren, and I'm of Tim Keller, and I'm of uh, you know, T.D. Jakes, or whoever. But there is an issue. There is a problem within American Christianity. There is, number one, within us all. Our just natural selfishness, our natural contentious nature, our natural uh, tendency to get easily offended and to not forgive because it's easier when someone hurts your feelings to just walk away and, and write them off than it is to reconcile, to swallow your pride, to come to that brother and say, hey, let's work things out. And so you've got that as a factor. Number two, you've got the rise of the celebrity preacher culture in our, in our, in our society, in the church, in the last 50, 60 years. Um, and that's not to say that all well-known preachers are bad. I, there are some that I greatly admire who've blessed my life. But the problem is, I don't think any, I don't think God ever intended for any preacher to be a celebrity. I don't think God ever intended for us to have loyalty to this preacher or this teacher um, and to just drink in every word they speak. Is it, is it okay for you to have an author or a, or a preacher that you watch or you podcast or you read who really feeds your soul and teaches you and instructs you? Yes, that can be a healthy thing as long as you realize they're only human as long as you feel free to disagree with them sometimes, as long as you read and listen to other voices too. And then third, there's, there's the rise of political Christianity. And again, I need to say this carefully. I don't mean to imply that we as Christians should just stick to scripture and, and doing religious things and stay out of politics. Uh, we live in a, we're blessed to live in a democracy. Uh, and so every citizen of this country has a voice. We would, be, we would be wasting, squandering an opportunity if we just exempted ourselves from that process uh, because we have a responsibility to be salt and light in our culture, and part of that is standing up for righteousness. But it matters how we do that. And it matters that we differentiate our political opinions, and let's face it, every conviction you and I have about politics is an opinion 
Can we agree on that? We differentiate our political opinions from the truth of Scripture. You see, based on conversations I have with a lot of Christians, based on things I see Christians posting on social media, it, it very much seems to me that a lot of us are much more sure of our political opinions, much more excited about our political opinions, much more firm in our political opinions, much more fervent and, and determined to share our political opinions than we are the truth of the gospel. It seems like we are uh, Christians who vote this way, we're, we're conservative Christians first, instead of we're Christians who vote conservative, or in some cases, Christians who vote progressive. So that's a problem, because when that becomes your dominant reality, your dominant identity, that causes division in the church. Even if you and I vote the same way, and, and a lot of us here in church do vote pretty much uh, consistently the same way, there's still issues on which we disagree, I guarantee you. If we sat down and we just went down the line of political uh, issues and, and candidates and, and talking about uh, parties and, and elections, uh, you and I would disagree significantly on some things. And we might get angry with each other. But we can't let that divide us because that's not what's most important. We need to be able to get beyond that and say, okay, you think this way and I think this way. You voted for that guy and I voted for this guy, but it doesn't matter because Christ died for us both and that's what unites us. Let me turn my light back on. Um, and then fourth, there's, there's the whole rise of conspiracy theory culture. I guess my light's not going to work. Uh, and what I talk about, what I, what I mean when I say that is, these days, and social media, again, is a, a big contributing factor. There are all these underground theories. And I'm trying to be careful here. I don't want to insult anyone. But I will say this. If you believe, for instance, that no one should take vaccinations, you shouldn't take your kids to get vaccinations, that's your decision as a parent, and I respect your decision. If you believe that, uh, that parents, all Christian parents, should homeschool their kids, again, your opinion, and I'm sure you're doing a great job of homeschooling your kids, good for you. If you believe, on the other hand, uh, that all Christian parents should have their kids in the public schools so you can be salt and light in your local community, I think that opinion has a lot to commend it, but that's just your opinion. There are a lot of things like that. And then beyond that, again, the whole conspiracy theory idea. Um, so there was an article in The Atlantic this past week about this shadowy figure who calls himself Q. Uh, somebody, no one knows who it is, who posts online and talks about things going on in government and predicts things that are going to happen um, and uses revelation-sounding language, language that's taken from Scripture, uh, refers to prayer. And so some Christians have gotten involved in this, have become followers of this, this person, Q. And they've begun to believe, well, this guy knows what's going on in government. This guy knows what's really happening. We need to listen to him. He's, he's like a prophet. And my problem with that is twofold. Number one, a lot of things he's predicted haven't actually come true. Number two, you don't know who this person is. This could be some guy just leading us all astray. What unites us is not the theories, the opinions that we have. What unites us is the Word of God. We're becoming more and more fractured as we listen only to voices that agree with the things we want to hear. The, the perfect church, the church the way it was meant to be, would be a church where 
there are people of different races, where there are people who vote for different candidates, where there are people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and they're all together, and they're able to put all of that aside and unite around the gospel. That's what I'm saying. And I hope you agree with me on that. Um, so, again, long explanation there, but this is the key doctrine, the key issue in the Corinthian church. So we have to understand that to understand this book. Let's move on. Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul's saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize most of you, because then that would feed the whole idea that people should follow me instead of following Jesus. And it might surprise you to find out that a powerful evangelist like Paul would have baptized only three or four people in a church he himself planted. And that just goes to the way Paul did ministry. He, Paul was a traveling evangelist. He was a church planter. He was not a pastor. So he would go to a place like Corinth, he would plant a church, and then once it was established, it would move on, and he would move on. And part of him establishing the church was, as quickly as possible, he would identify people who would make good elders, and he would train them, and then he would put them in charge. And that's what Paul did here. He baptized the first few people who became believers. And then after that, he had already raised up elders who took over that uh, responsibility, which again tells us something about Paul. Paul was not interested in gathering a, a, a following up for himself, in accumulating fanboys. And that's, that's really a challenge to pastors like me who are tempted to have people follow us instead of the Lord. And then finally, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So a couple of clarifications there. Paul's not saying that it's wrong for him to baptize. He's saying that's not my chief aim. That's not my chief goal. My goal is to preach the gospel. Secondly, when he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, he's not taking a shot at Apollos, who was known as more eloquent than Paul. He's not saying there's anything wrong with being eloquent or with speaking well. I think what he's saying, and I, I really do believe you can paraphrase it this way, is when I came to you, I wasn't trying to impress you. My goal was not that I would walk away and you would all say, wow, that Paul can really, really preach the word. Well, I want to listen to him again and again. Paul said, I wasn't trying to impress you. I was just hoping for you to hear the gospel. And man, when I read that as a, as a preacher of the gospel, uh, as someone who's called to preach the gospel, it, it challenges me. And, and I want to say, Lord, make my heart that kind of heart so that I never want people to be impressed with me, that I never want people to uh, talk well of me, but just to glorify God and experience the gospel. So what can we do if we have just as big a problem with division within American churches today as the Corinthians did back then. So let's go back to verse 10, because verse 10 gives us the instructions. The rest of the, of the passage was just explaining the problem. Three things. If we want to be united, number one, we've got to make our message united. We've got to say the same thing. As Paul said it, agree with one another. And literally in Greek, when he says, I want you to uh, agree with one another, he it means say the same thing. That's literally what it means in Greek. And anybody who's ever been a parent, a married parent, knows how important this is. If you're a single parent, then 
you can't, I mean, you speak with one voice because you're one person. But if you're a married parent, you've had this conversation with your spouse at least once where you've said, listen, we've got to have a united front. I can't say one thing to our child while you say something else. If I say she can't stay up past nine, you can't go up to her and say, hey, as long as you're nice and quiet, I'll let you stay up till 1030. I, if I say she can't have ice cream before supper, you can't be sneaking her an ice cream cone in the middle of the afternoon. We have to speak with a united front, right? Because that's, that is disaster for parenting if you don't speak with the same voice. At, I mean, I, I'm kind of giving you some inside baseball here, but on our staff, as, as a church staff, one of the things we've agreed on is we don't always agree with each other. We don't always agree on the direction we should take, but we always present a united front. In other words, we may disagree on details, but when we walk out of that room after staff meeting, we all say the same thing. And if, if someone ever disagreed with the direction we headed as a church staff, if a member of the church staff said, I can't go this way, well, you know, honestly, we would stay until we did agree. We would work things through because it's so important to speak with one voice. Um, the concern here is for lost people. You know, in the example of our church staff, we're doing that because we want to lead well. In the example of parents, you want to present a united front because you want your children to get good direction from you. But for Christians, we speak with one voice. We say the same message because lost people are listening. And we need to say the true gospel. That needs to be our message. Again, to, to go back a little bit, you've got opinions on a number of things. But when people think about us as believers, they shouldn't think about our politics. They shouldn't think about our opinions on cultural issues. They shouldn't think about uh, the way we look or our race. What they should think about is, oh, those are the people who believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that he rose again the third day and that he's coming back someday to initiate a new heaven and a new earth. That's what they should think of when they think of us. Say the same thing. Number two, it means we don't tolerate divisions. It means that we root out division, in fact. We fight against it. We are peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed be the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. And, and when he says that there be no divisions among you, that's a commandment. That, that's a command from God, that if there are divisions within any particular church, factions, infighting, backbiting, then that's a sin against the Lord, and the Lord will judge that church if they don't attend to those divisions. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean we can't disagree. I said this earlier. If you've ever gotten upset and left a church, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. There are legitimate reasons to leave a church. I've counseled people in the past, my parents included, and said, yeah, I think it's time for you to move on. But choose your battles wisely. I don't have any statistics on this, but just anecdotally, I think 95% of the reasons we get mad, 95% of the reasons we walk away aren't legitimate. Most of the time we could work through our differences. Not many hills are actually worth dying. And we die a lot of unnecessary deaths on a lot of unnecessary hills within Christian churches, and that's sad to say. You know, when, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he was telling us, to get involved. Sometimes when you see two brothers, two sisters, and they're disagreeing, 
you're tempted to say, this is not my problem. In fact, this is not my place. But it is your place because the unity of God's church matters. And you need to get involved. And you need to go up to, the, to, to each one of them and say, you've got to work through this. You've got to work this out for the sake of Christ. And finally, uh, he says, be perfectly united in mind and thought. And he says it this way, in the same mind, in the same judgment. And it doesn't mean we have to think the same way about everything. As I said earlier, uh, we would disagree on a lot of issues if we sat down and went through all the different uh, political and cultural issues that you could name. Uh, certainly we would disagree on things like restaurants and movies, but even on more important things. We don't have to all think the same. Diverse personalities within a church are actually a very, very healthy thing. But it does mean, it does mean that we have this, it, we're headed in the same direction. We can agree together on the most important things. And the only way to do that is to focus on Jesus. Again, he starts off by saying, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, for the sake of Jesus. Just like maybe some of you've had the experience of being upset at one of your siblings. But at Christmas time, or family reunion, or a wedding, or, or a funeral, you say, you know, I'm just going to bite my tongue, and I'm going to treat them with kindness for the sake of my mom, because it would hurt her, it would destroy her, it would break her heart if we weren't all there for Christmas, if we weren't all there for this wedding, if we weren't all there and, and treating each other respectfully for this family reunion. Many of us have had that experience. I haven't, thankfully, but many of us have had that experience. If we're willing to do that for a mom or a dad or a grandparent, why not do that for Jesus and say, I don't necessarily, this person over here who sits across the church building from me, she's not really my cup of tea. He's not really the kind of person I would choose to hang out with. And frankly, he's hurt my feelings in the past. She's offended me at times. I don't know that we could really take a road trip together in, a, in the backseat of a car, but, but I'm going to treat them with kindness. I'm going to love them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm not going to rehearse for them all the ways they've offended me. Instead, I'm going to treat them with kindness, not because I want to, not because it makes my life easier, but for the sake of Christ. Philip Yancey is probably my favorite Christian writer, and he told a story once about uh, he found a one-volume copy of the Oxford English Dictionary in a bookstore once, and he thought, oh, this is great. I'll buy it. Now, here's the thing about Oxford English Dictionary that I didn't know until I read this. Oxford English Dictionary has virtually every word in the English language. It's normally 20 volumes. Picture, you know, the old encyclopedia you had on your bookshelf uh, years ago. That condensed into one single volume. So the print is incredibly small. So Philip Yancey gets this, this book that has every word in the English language. He gets it home, but it's way too small for him to read. So what he did was he, he got one of those one of those uh, magnifying glasses on, the, on kind of the lever swinging arm kind of thing, and he swings it out, and then he takes one of those jeweler's magnifying glasses, you know, that you put on your eye, and when he looks through both of those, right in the middle of those two, where those two intersect, he can read the definition of a word. And he said, when he's looking at that, he can read those definitions right in the center, but the further he gets from the center, the more blurry it becomes. He can read with perfect clarity right in the middle, but on the edges, he can't read well at all. And he said, if we really want to be united as people of God, we have to focus on the center. The center of our faith 
is not the end times and your theory on when and how Jesus is coming back. The center of our faith is not which denomination is best. It's not which preacher is best. It's not uh, which political party is best. The center of our faith is who is Jesus? What did he do for us? And how does he want us to live? And as long as we stay focused on that, then we'll be united. It's as simple as that. And I hope that as a pastor, I'm, I'm preaching that. So let us pray real briefly uh, right now and hope you'll pray in greater length later on for God to continue to unify us. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for making different people one, making us your body and your bride. Help us, Lord, to carefully preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for it is precious to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining me. Uh, we'll get into... The, the cross of Christ next week. Hope you're going to have a, a wonderful week, and I, I hope to see many of you on Sunday, either in person, uh, Saturday or Sunday, either in person or online. God bless you, and have a wonderful week.